Welcome to the Bible Unthumped. I'm David Kay. I'm not a scholar of the Bible, but I've spent my entire life reading and studying it, and I've found that many people really don't understand the Bible they're thumping. So on this podcast, we get into the story behind the stories that were collected into books that became the book we know today as the Bible. You can have faith and still ask questions. This is the Bible Unthumped. Welcome to the podcast today. If you've been listening recently, we have been talking about the stories of creation in Genesis, stories plural. And we have gotten to that point in our episode rhythm where we're going to have an interview. So we're kind of in this way of doing this podcast at this point where there's six presentational episodes. And then I invite my very good friend and also podcaster, JT, who is with me here today in the studio. And we're going to have an interview regarding creation. We're going to talk about some of the questions that some of you have submitted and just generally have a bit of um, dialogue about what we've discussed in recent episodes. So welcome today, JT. Yeah, absolutely. Glad to be here. Thank you for having me. And how are you today? Oh, I am fantastic. Great. Well, I will let you, as always, play the role of interviewer, and then uh, we'll see if I can answer a few questions. Yeah, sure thing. Uh, First question I have is, when did you personally, David, Learn about the two creation stories and the Bible. Um, this, for me, I, I distinctly remember this. This was an event in my life that ended up being rather pivotal, actually. I was in grad school, and reminder to the audience, because I'm not a Bible scholar, I do not have an education that was specifically anything to do with the Bible. Um, but in my grad school, there was in the same semester, the first semester I was there, a fellow who was a priest, a Catholic priest from Detroit, and he was a participant in this program. Again, had nothing to do with the Bible, but he was religious, I was religious, we sat down and had a conversation. And I really don't even remember the context of that conversation, except that he mentioned the two creation stories. And that's the first time I had ever heard that. And mind you, I grew up in church, I went to Sunday school, I went to vacation Bible school, it was part of my everyday to be in the Bible, and I had never learned there were two creation stories before. And it prompted me to go back and see if what he was saying was true. And sure enough, it was. Like, as soon as he mentioned it and told me how to find it, basically, I saw it, and I have never unseen it. I I knew at that moment my previous set of beliefs, my faith had taken a hit. There was a bit of rattling that occurred, and it played out over a very long period of time. But I knew that there was something wrong with the way that I had been told to understand Genesis from his identifying these two stories for me. Well, I wonder why, because we have a question that's kind of along those lines. Why did why wasn't there an effort made to differentiate the two? Why did they kind of jam them together in the same chapter, do you think? Why did the editors or why did the people who taught me? Well, I guess the I guess the editors is the question, right? Whoever whoever structured Genesis that we now all read. Yeah, I really don't know. Obviously you'd have to get in the mind of an editor an editor who probably lived during the Persian period of Jewish history, so maybe the 4th century BC, maybe the 5th. But somebody from that time period took these two stories and melded them together. And it makes sense that he would put the more cosmic seven-day version first, and then you have a version that's sort of homed in and deals with Adam and Eve, and then that would maybe come next. But they are still two very distinct stories. I think he just probably felt like these were very important parts of the Jewish self-understanding, that they were very relevant to 
the culture of Judaism at that point in history. Right. Like it seems it seems clear that they must have felt at the time like, well, these two stories don't coexist. They both describe the same series of events and they don't describe them the same way, but they're also both so important that we need to write them both down. I think that's right. And that's in the episode uh, from the previous episode, the one previous to this one, where we talked about sort of King Arthur and the two legends, where right. one is regarding the Lady of the Lake and one is regarding the sword and the stone. And you get these two very different versions of how the Arthur myth unfolds. Well, why, why do you have to choose between them? Put them both in there. And I think we in English, as English speakers, we don't see the distinction nearly as easily as they would have seen it in the ancient world. Again, because of this, the idea that the two names for God, Elohim and Yahweh, get brushed over. They become God or Lord or something that erases the distinction between these two stories. Yeah. Well, and I think you said a key word there, which is the uh, Arthurian myth. If If you think of it as a myth, and not as a fact, then it makes sense to go like, well, there's here's a bunch of different versions. Like, let's let's throw them all out there and see what we can learn from them. If we don't think of them as this is a literal description of the beginning of the world, then there's room for multiple stories. Right. You you're not trying to line up the facts, perhaps. Um. So the next question we have is about the Garden of Eden. Uh, where are all the dinosaurs? <laughs> Which day uh, did God create the dinosaurs? <laughs> Um, which day did God create the dinosaurs? Well, if I'm being very literal about it, it must have been on day six when he created all of the land creatures. But here's the thing. I grew up in an evangelical tradition. I was absolutely taught, as crazy as it sounds to me today, I was taught that dinosaurs lived with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. I was taught that dinosaurs coexisted with early humanity and probably died out, not in an asteroid event. But in the Great Flood, which is described a few chapters later, like maybe some dinosaurs made it onto the Ark, maybe the rest of them didn't. But there were all these wild speculations about how dinosaurs meshed with the stories in Genesis, to the point where I feel like evangelicals in general have to live with a lot of strange tension around the subject of dinosaurs. (laughs) Well, and it's you can see why, because we have the scientific fossil record that tells us that the dinosaurs have been dead for 60 plus million years. And you're going, well, but my church says that we've only been here for 7,000 years. So it's, I think when you set your faith and science opposed to one another, that puts you in a really strange place as a person. There's a lot of cognitive dissonance with that when really there are, there are ways to retain both. Well, and I think hopefully in the course of this conversation, we'll get to some of that resolving some of that tension in a way that might be helpful to the listeners. Yeah, and the next question I have actually, I think, probably goes in that direction, which is you talked about how the days, the seven days, might be understood as something other than 24-hour days. And I've always thought that day, especially yom, could could mean a 24-hour day, a day-night cycle, but also could mean like an undefined period of time, maybe even a billion years or an epoch or something. Um, can you talk more about why you do not agree with the day-age theory of creation? Right. So just as a reminder to the audience, the day-age theory of creation is the idea that a day for God could be a very, very long period of time. He does not live on the same time scales that we humans live on. So if you read Genesis and you see that something happened on a day and then something happened on the next day, Maybe we're talking about extremely long spans of time and not literal 24-hour periods of time. The problem I have with that is that the reason people make that accommodation is because they're trying to make science 
and the Bible coexist in some literal sense, some way in which these stories are reconcilable, the scientists and the Bible writers are somehow reconcilable, it does do violence in my mind to the word yom in Hebrew, which does the vast majority of the time mean day, simple 24-hour period. I should mention that there are points in the Bible where you see that word that doesn't necessarily mean day, sort of in the in the day of Moses or something like that. That is a legitimate use of that word. But for the most part, we're talking about days as we know days. I don't think I need to contort the storyteller. Yeah. If he wanted to tell a story about seven days, one after the other, I'm fine with that. I don't need to make that comport with what the scientists say. The day-age theory, by the way, is only one way of doing this. There's some other people who look at the Genesis stories and they try to make a similar accommodation and they're like, well, maybe there are giant gaps of time between each of the days. In other words, the birds and fish did get made in a 24-hour time period, but then eons went by before we got to the next day. Some people even read this and they're like, well, maybe we take the stories in Genesis literally and it was actually seven days, but God, who can do anything he wants, made everything look really old so that the scientists got fooled and there's this sort of prankster God who... (laughs) who um, represents an accommodation somehow. So it's, it's, we get wrapped around really, really strange axles. And for me, day-age theory is one of those when we try to make this story a science book. Right. Well, and it seems like it's kind of all of the contortions that, are, that people are doing to try to make these creation stories, these creation legends, these creation myths fit with what we actually know of the scientific record of our world. They kind of, all of those contortions go away if you cease to think of the stories as literal. So let me pose that in the form of a question, if I may. Why do we believe science more than we believe the Bible? Or vice versa, for that matter, if you're coming from the school of thought that the Bible is somehow more reliable than science. I think it's interesting that we pit those two things against each other. And of course, that's the age-old Well, the truth is it's not age-old. It really originates in the 19th century, where we started to pit the Bible and science against one another. But why does that happen? My fundamental argument there would be that we are not respecting the genre of biblical literature that we're dealing with. Imagine this. This might be helpful to some of our listeners. C.S. Lewis is somebody that many of us are familiar with, whether we're Christians or non-Christians. C.S. Lewis was a 20th century Christian author. Chronicles of Narnia. Chronicles of Narnia are the things he is best known for, but he wrote... And, and the Chronicles of Narnia are heavy Christian allegory. Yes, they are allegory. And that's kind of my point, because if you were creating a compilation of C.S. Lewis's works, you would have to include Narnia. That's too important to leave out. But you would also include books like... Mere Christianity, or A Grief Observed, or The Great Divorce. And if you put all of those together in one compilation of C.S. Lewis's collected works, you would have to recognize that you are not dealing with one genre. You are dealing with multiple types of literature that C.S. Lewis wrote. Yeah, all bound together under one cover. All bound together under one cover, which is exactly what our Bible is. And this goes back to one of our early episodes when we talked about whether or not the Bible should be thought of as a book. It really is lots of individual books, lots of different types of books, types of literature, genres of literature that have come together. And if we approach Genesis as though it must be the same thing as Old Testament history or Old Testament prophecy or, in the New Testament, the letters or the revelation, we get ourselves in trouble by thinking of all of these as the same kind of literature. Genesis 
is not history, and Genesis is also not science. What we are dealing with is a specific genre that we might simply call story, ancient storytelling. Yeah. And and if you are a believer, even if we say that, what you just said, it's not history, it's not science, it's just a story, it doesn't mean that it couldn't be heavenly inspired. It, it says nothing whatsoever about how this book came to be and what God had to do with it. Right. It doesn't, it doesn't change the import. That's right. Or the origin of it. It just changes the interpretation of us now in 2023. That's right. Because how do you know what God is capable of inspiring? Is God obliged only to inspire nonfiction or history or science textbook? Is that the limitation that we place on God's writing capacities or God's inspirational capacities? Why can't these stories simply be in the genre of ancient storytelling? Yeah, and I, I personally really like the thought exercises that a lot of the podcasts that you've done bring up. And one of the thoughts I had while I was prepping for this was, I was thinking, you know, it makes sense to start the Bible with the creation story, right? Start at the beginning. I understand why we would do that. But I can't help but wonder if... If the Bible started differently, if we kind of started like in media res, if we started with, you know, David, and then Genesis mm-hmm. is like book eight, would the creation mm-hmm. story be less important? Would it be less of a, would people be less jammed up about why, why isn't Adam riding a dinosaur if that book was further back in the Bible? Because everyone starts at the beginning. Exactly. And of course, yes, as you say, it does make sense that these beginning stories be at the beginning. But I do think we think about things in terms of the order in which they're presented to us. And these Genesis stories, if you, I know you have some background in church, in church school. I don't know if it was the same way for you as it was for me. But these stories were among the very first things that as children we were exposed to. The yeah. felt board Sunday school classroom yep. sort of thing. Yep, 13 years of Catholic school and, and plenty of vacation Bible schools and all that Sunday school and all that stuff. And it was always like, we start with the beginning. Here's Cain and Abel, Adam and Eve, seven days, Noah. Like we, that's, where every, that's where the Old Testament stuff always started. We never got to like numbers or whatever. Exactly. You know, we just, we get the, we hit the kind of high points that everyone knows. That's this section of the podcast that you're covering. That's what we all learned as kids. I've often wondered about that because, as I mentioned in one of the early episodes, the Hebrew Old Testament is ordered very differently from the Christian Old Testament. They put the books in radically different places. That said, they both put Genesis at the outset. But it sort of brings up the question, if we were to present this in a different order, as you're suggesting, how would we think about it differently? If we were being chronological about things, we actually would start the Old Testament probably with Amos and Hosea. Those were the first things written down that we have in sort of a complete form. Well, if we started with that, the prophecy, and then eventually got to the writing down and the compilation of the Genesis stories, it would take on a very different flavor, as you're suggesting. Yeah, if you watch the Star Wars movies and you start with the prequels and not with episode four, which is the first movie chronologically to be released, it looks very different by the time you're done. Your experience of the 9, 10, 11 movies, whatever it is, is very different, depending on if you start with the first one that they want you to start with or the first one that was physically released. You would feel the freedom to think differently about these stories if that were the case. Yeah. Um, All right. So another question, is it illegitimate to understand the snake as Satan in retrospect? Like maybe the original author thought it was just a snake, but really it was Satan, but we just didn't know it until later on. Is that like a reasonable way to think about that? Yeah. I mean, if I understand the question, I mentioned that the storyteller and the original audience for the Garden of Eden could not have conceived of the snake as Satan. 
And the reason they couldn't have done that is because Satan didn't exist yet. In the Jewish understanding, in Jewish literature, in the Jewish mindset, there was no such personage as Satan at the time the story was written down. So if it wasn't Satan for the original audience, is it not legitimate to think of it as Satan later in history? Obviously, you see many, many texts even in the ancient world, and certainly through the Roman Catholic medieval period, talking about this snake as Satan. I don't think it's illegitimate to reinterpret something. The point I think I'm trying to make by stating that Satan came along later is that you would, whatever later layers you might place on this, you would also have to acknowledge that in its original form, it had a different meaning that we haven't discovered. And if we're going to unthump the Bible, we need to look at it through new lenses. So if that snake is not Satan, which he originally wasn't, then how does the story seem different? How does it play out differently? And so some of the very large dogmas that originate from this satanic figure, the fall, this alienation of humans from God and the role that Satan plays in that, you have to discard all of that if you're going to go back to the original text and recognize that all of that was later imposed upon it. Yeah, the Satan the Satan as a snake thing, I, I think it's really interesting to go and peel back our kind of built-in assumptions about how this story happened, because, you know, that's the way I learned it, obviously, is it Adam and Eve are in the Garden of Eden and Satan in snake form tricks Eve into eating the apple and then Eve tricks Adam into eating the apple and then the Garden of Eve was Garden of Eden is ruined for everyone. Um, so it's nice to go back and look at it and go like, well, it wasn't that's not what happened real at the time like there wasn't a Satan and there wasn't a hell. The people that wrote that story didn't know those terms. It right. was just Eve just talked to a snake. Right, exactly. I mean it, it takes out the satanic element if there's no Satan. So instead of thinking of Eve as some satanic instrument that gets enlarged very sadly over time to include all of women are, are somehow instruments of the devil, that if you take the Satan out of the story because he's not in there, you can understand this with different perspective. Eve was deceived by a snake. That's what the storyteller intended. So to make it as dark and demonic as later people did requires a different context altogether from that which the original storyteller would have operated in. And yeah, and it also makes me think about the kind of well, just context, context, right? It's always context. What was always. the culture that told this story? What what were their assumptions? And like just the simple fact that clergy throughout history have been overwhelmingly men, it, it makes sense that you can see the patriarchy built in there, but we can we can recognize it from thousands of years ago and go, maybe our understanding of this story could be a little different than theirs was because we've advanced as a society. Sure. As you say, clergy have historically been men. There are reasons for that that are drawn from both the Old and New Testament. This clearly is a highly patriarchal Old Testament passage we're dealing with here in the Garden of Eden. But if you recognize that it was the product of and reflective of the culture in which it was written, then you're free to think about it differently, perhaps. Yeah, and I think it's important to think about it critically and with the proper context, because we didn't, we're not taught the proper context, and we're certainly not taught as children. We're, we're not critical thinkers at that point. It's important to go back as adults and go, here's what I thought I knew about this. Like, that's what I'm doing. And I'm, like, I, I listen to the podcast and I go, oh, that's not what I was taught. And it's not what I thought when I was younger. And I guess I haven't thought about it since. One thing, when I was younger, and mind you, this isn't so long ago for me, I was in the biblicist camp more recently than I would like to admit. But then at that point, when I was relying upon the education I was given as a kid, when I was making assumptions about what the Bible was, 
and how accurate it had to be in scientific and historical terms, um, in socially descriptive terms, I lived with a lot of cognitive dissonance. And that maybe is too one of the great tragedies of misunderstanding biblical literature, is that I had to figure out, well, what were the dinosaurs that we just talked about? How does Adam relate to Eve? How do men relate to women, biblically speaking? Does science really conflict with what I'm taught in the scriptures. And that cognitive dissonance suddenly evaporated when I was allowed to look at this story and a range of other stories and literatures in the Bible and view them for what they are instead of what I imposed on them, what I assumed they had to be. So if I let these stories be stories, I'm free of wondering about the dinosaurs anymore. (laughs) I'm, I'm free of having to question whether scientists are all a bunch of idiots who can't seem to get their calculations right. Yeah, and well, and the thing is, is there's no downside because the stories haven't lost their power. That's right. If you start to think of them as stories, stories are very powerful. That's right. So if I understand these stories as part of the cultural and historic heritage of Judaism or Judeo-Christianity, I can still appreciate them. I can still incorporate them into my self-understanding downstream from that. But I don't have to view them as science textbooks or as history textbooks. There was no such thing as a textbook, so this could not be one. Yeah, and that's, you know, having been through the pandemic and kind of going through a climate crisis, I see all the time this distrust in the scientific community, and I wonder how much of it, especially in America, is tied into religion. And if you think that your faith and the science are at odds, and you have to pick one, well, one of them, you go to hell if you pick wrong. So, if we're if we were able to make space for the Bible to live alongside science and neither one get in the way of the other, then that just seems like it is helpful even right now in the current society that we live in. Helpful, and I would argue correct. It's correct in the sense that if you try to make Genesis 1 through 3 a science text, you've dealt with it incorrectly. That's not what it is. But if you let it be what it really is, that part of the Bible where you are learning how Jews told their story, including all of their origins, then you don't have to question the scientists in the same way. Whether they are working on vaccines, or whether they are exploring outer space, or whether they are devising satellites that operate around a round spherical globe instead of a flat one. You're allowed to do that and still hold these stories in your tradition. Yeah, and I think that's really important. And it kind of solves a lot of problems with really no downside. We talk about on on my podcast, Movie Life Crisis, we talk about if we find a 30-year-old movie that has a plot hole, we, we generally just kind of go like, yeah, who cares, man? Like, did you like the movie? Was it powerful? Did it make you laugh? Did it make you feel? Like, that's what it's supposed to do. Let's not nitpick the plot. And I kind of feel like a similar... Attitude could kind of go towards these Genesis stories. Who cares where the dinosaurs were? Like, is it, is it an important story? Yeah. Like, just don't try to make it into a literal history of how the world was created. It isn't that. Just it's enjoy that. it for what it is. That's right. It, it really, it's tragic to approach this story, in my humble opinion, as fact. I don't think the storyteller understood it as fact. I don't think the listener understood it as fact. I certainly don't think we have to understand it today as fact. Unless there's anything else, maybe this is a good place to wrap it up for today. I recognize listeners that we are dealing with really big topics here today, and there might be a range of reactions to the science versus Genesis debate. I wish that debate didn't exist. 
as you've heard us talk about, but I would also like to talk about what's coming next on the podcast. My intention for the next arc of episodes is that we deal with the Gospels. So we're going to move from the beginning of the Old Testament now to the beginning of the New Testament, and we'll do a little unthumping there, maybe help you think about what a Gospel is and how the Gospels we have in the Bible um, might be a little different than what you assumed as well. So I hope you will tune in for that. JT, thanks for being here to have this conversation. Yeah, and I personally am very much looking forward to learning why the writers of the four Gospels have very white European names, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, (laughs) given that they were neither white nor European. They weren't white, they weren't European, (laughs) but white Europeans started adopting biblical names, and I think that's a a big part of why it is that way. But we'll talk more about the the Gospels in upcoming episodes, so please tune in for that. As always, reach out to the podcast at thebibleunthumped at gmail.com. And as always, less thumping, more understanding, and we'll see you next time.